This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ashley. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. So glad you could join us. And um, Yeah, it's been a heavy, heavy week, hasn't it? You can feel it. You can sense it. On Tuesday at an elementary school in Ovalde, Texas, during a, a time of year when, when kids should have been screaming out the, the words of the great philosopher Ozzy Osbourne, school's out for summer, we instead heard parents weeping over the death of 19 children, fourth graders, just a year younger than my boys Ethan and Sean, and their two fourth grade teachers gunned down and killed by an 18-year-old who opened fire with an AR-15. Back up two more days to Sunday. A 300-page report was released documenting over two decades of mishandling and cover-up of sexual abuse within the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. And like, that's just the past week's headlines, which come on the heels of a Chinese man opening fire on a Taiwanese church in California, killing one, and a white man targeting a grocery store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, killing 10 with another assault rifle. And, you know, we've, we've reached the point that... Um, the, the gun violence in our own city, the ongoing invasion in Ukraine, that's just noise in the background anymore, isn't it? I even notice that uh, over a million have now died in our own country due to complications from COVID. It's heavy. It's horrific. And it feels like as a whole that we have failed to protect the most vulnerable at each and every turn, hasn't it? And yet, as horrific as these events are, let, let's not be so quick to just minimize and reduce the impact to a death count. Uh, because the ripple effects of the evil, they extend far beyond the number of lives lost. They extend to those uh, teachers and, and the children in Uvalde. They extend to those who are simply out buying groceries on a Saturday afternoon in Buffalo. It extends to those who survive, some of whom don't have any physical scars to show. But what we know is they will carry the traumatic scars of those with them, those events with them for the rest of their lives. You know, two weeks, we, two weeks ago, we started a new series in the Fruit of the Spirit by looking at the fruit of love in the wake of all the evil that played out in Buffalo. And this morning, we're going to look at the fruit of the joy in the wake of all this week's horror. Like, how do we do that? Because it not only feels inappropriate to talk about joy at a time like this, it feels impossible to be filled with joy, doesn't it? it it's a whole lot easier to cry out, Maranatha, right? Aramaic for, for come, O Lord, right? The, the closing line of John's revelation. And, and what, what I want us to hear is we should stop and we should grieve and we should lament and we should as followers of Jesus, we should cry out, but what we know to be true is we do not grieve as those as if that have no hope, do we? No, we have hope. Because what we see time and time again throughout Scripture, story after story of God's people rejoicing in the midst of suffering. We, we, we see this in Paul's life, who, who was able to, to worship even while wrongfully imprisoned in Acts 16. And if you were to read his letters um, in the order in which they were written, what you'll notice is that his suffering increased through each and every letter, leading to his eventual execution. But not only that, his joy increased. 
We see that with Peter who wrote to those who were suffering and facing persecution saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in the midst of it. And we see that with David rejoicing throughout the Psalms in the midst of some of the darkest moments in his life. But how? That's what I want us to see as we look to God's word this morning, to hear what God has to say in Psalm 16, which is going to offer us four reminders of where we find joy, even in the midst of this week, this month, and all that has gone on. And so let's do this. Before we open God's word, will you bow your head and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we, we come to you with a whole host of emotions this morning, Father. We come angry. We come confused conflicted, sad. I mean, we, we run the whole gamut. And then in the midst of all of that, there's a, there's a graduation, there's a birth announcement, there are these pockets of things that would normally bring us joy, and it almost feels guilty for us to feel that joy, God. And I guess what I hope that we see this morning in your word is that we can hold both of those emotions in tension with each other. That you have called us to be people filled with joy regardless of what it is that we face. And Father, we confess and we acknowledge that we're not quite sure how to do that. And so Father, I'm praying for an overwhelming movement of your spirit stirring in our hearts, opening our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say, helping us to find joy in the midst of all of this. And we ask all this in Jesus' name in one loud voice together. Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 16 if you haven't already. If you, uh, if you were a sword drill uh, kid growing up, it's going to be right about there in the middle of your Bible. And David begins Psalm 16 with a, a plea, right? A plea for protection. He's, he's petitioning God and he says, preserve me, O God. Like, watch over me. Keep, keep me safe. Protect me. But protect him from what? Protect him from whom? Unlike many of the other psalms where we're aware of what David is facing here, we're not so sure. We're not so sure of the context. We're not so sure of the situation surrounding this psalm. We're not sure of his reason for writing this psalm. What we do know is that David had no shortage of enemies, though, did he? He, he had enemies inside his own nation, especially King Saul after Solomon had anointed this little shepherd boy to be king. He had enemies outside of Israel when he became king, the, the, the nations that surrounded. But some believe, based on verse 9 and 10 that we're going to look at later in a little bit, that the enemy that he was seeking protection from was more natural, that it was disease, that it may have been his pending death. But in the end... The enemy doesn't really matter, does it? If it mattered, he probably would have told us. Because the point of this psalm is not who he needed protection from, but who he came to for protection. And he came to God. He trusted in God and in God alone, because it is only in God that we are able to find true, lasting joy, that we are able to be filled with joy regardless of what we're facing. And here's how. He kind of walks us through four ways here. And number one is this. 
It's that we find joy in God's presence. We find joy in God's presence. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again here real quick. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And it was in God, it was there in his presence that David took refuge, that he found peace, that he found protection. And that word refuge, it is, uh, it's kind of a, if you think about the emotions you feel, it's kind of a beautiful, peaceful word, isn't it? Refuge. And when I hear it, I'm, I think about like an animal refuge, right? Like an animal sanctuary, a place where endangered animals are able to be protected from their enemies, which unfortunately most every time ends up being us. A couple of summers ago on vacation, like we're getting ready for summer vacation now, and I just want to throw out a, you know, I talked about Tortorese's Pizza the other day in case you need a pizza place. Now let me get you a vacation place. A couple summers ago, we went north of the border to Packerland, and uh, we survived. We made it out of there. And uh, one of the things that we went to see was a big cat rescue. They had lions and tigers and no bears. But there was oh my. And uh, these, were, these were, you ever think that having a tiger is a good idea for having a pet? You ever think that was a good idea? Yeah, like some people do. And then that little cute baby tiger grows up to be a big tiger. And you're like, yeah, I can't do this. And so what this place has done is they've created a sanctuary, a refuge for these, uh, these pets that grew up to be a little bit bigger and stronger and more ferocious. But when you think about an animal refuge, like think about that. We must provide them refuge from ourselves and from the world that we have created around them. And in some sense, that's how I picture this room, this this sanctuary, this place of refuge that provides refuge from ourselves and from others and from the world that we've created. It is a, a place where we gather together to enter into God's presence and, and refocus our attention and our affection on God. And, and my prayer is that this room, this home that we as a church, that this would be a place where hurting people can begin to heal. Where we can begin to restore our relationship with God, especially those hurt by the church, those who you trusted to love you and protect you. Because much like an animal refuge, I think as a church, what we've come to learn is that we must provide refuge for others from ourselves and from the world we've created. Because I want want everyone to see God as a loving Heavenly Father, a good, good Father. I want want you to hear his voice. I want you to feel his love as we abide in his presence together. And, And the more that we turn to God, the more that we ever so slowly begin to trust God, the more confidently we're going to be able to declare, like David, saying to the Lord, saying to Yahweh, Right to a God who, who knows us personally by name and is, who has invited us to, to intimately know him by name. That you, Yahweh, you are my Lord, my, my Adonai. A, a name that the Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff says, it points to God as the almighty ruler to whom everything is subject. 
Right? It's conveying his authority over all of creation as the creator. But what I love here is not only does David declare God's sovereign power, he also declares his faithful provision. He, confessing, I have no good apart from you, apart from your presence. And that confession sounds so very different from what our world declares saying, I am my own Lord, and I have all the authority. I have no good apart from myself and what I am able to accomplish. And that is an absolutely crushing confession, isn't it? Because it places a weight on you you were never meant to bear. It, it puts you in a, in a position you were never meant to hold. Now, this this is a confession of who God is, that he is Lord. Amen? He and he alone is Lord. And what God has done, that he is the provider of all that is good. It is a confession of his sovereignty over all and his faithfulness to all. It is a confession of his presence where we begin to find joy. And so what I need you to hear is that as our lives become increasingly hectic and our world increasingly horrific, when you find yourself withdrawing and pulling away from God, I need you to come back and remember these words, recite these words, this confession and petition. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to you, God, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. And as you say that, return. For the second time, for the 30th time, for the 800th time, return to God's presence where we begin to find joy. Number two, what we see next is that we find joy with God's people. We find joy with God's people. We, we, we find joy with each other. Look at verse three. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Right, David, he didn't only find joy and delight in God's presence, but he, he delighted in the presence of God's people, into, into the saints of the land. And I think that is just as true for us today as God's people, isn't it? Right, there is something special about gathering together to worship, about seeing each other's faces and hearing each other's voices. Even if we're just simply making a joyful noise unto the Lord, God still views it as joyful. He doesn't need to put his earplugs in when we sing. Think about the wave. Think about the, the fist bump or the awkward turkey where you went to give a fist bump and they went to give a high five and it got awkward. Think about that hug, especially after going so long without them. By catching up, praying for one another, and not just, not just as friends, but as, but as, as family. Right? That's what we saw throughout uh, our series in Galatians, and that's what we see in the opening chapter of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, where he says, he says, only in Jesus Christ are we one, are we united, are we family, and only through him are we bound together. He says, our community with one another, it consists solely in what Christ has done. It has nothing to do with what we've done. And he goes on to say, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ in his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. I feel like he just summarized Galatians. 
But then he closes the chapter with this. He says, for Jesus Christ alone is our unity. Alone. He and he alone is our unity. He is our peace. And through him alone do we have access to one another, joy in one another, and fellowship with one another. Now, we, we come into this room with all kinds of emotions, don't we? All experiencing different things. We come into this room tired and lonely. We come worried and afraid. We, become, we come in battered and bruised. We come in on edge with our defenses up, and we come in with a desperate need for the joy that we find in one another as God's people, don't we? Desperate need. And that's what makes this time together so special and so sacred is because we find joy with God's people. Number three, we find joy in God's provision and in what it is that he provides. Look at number four, verse four. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And David here, he's contrasting the joy that we find in God with the sorrows of those who run after other gods. See, where our joy increases and multiplies as we pursue God, our sorrow multiplies when we turn from God and run after other gods. Because these altars that we build with our hands, these sacrifices where we willingly offer and pour out the offering of innocent blood, David says, These idols that we worship, whose names are on our lips, that we cry out to and turn to and trust in, they are incapable of providing the joy that they promise. They will let you down without fail every single time, and your sorrow will only multiply and increase exponentially. And I think all of this really kind of comes down to a simple misunderstanding of joy. Of, of where we find joy, of what brings us joy. Because see, we get so caught up in, in, in defending, even violently defending the, the treasures on earth that we have, thinking that the things of this world will bring us joy. But, but what God's going to go on to say here is that we will only ever find true lasting joy in Him and what He provides. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Both these verses, they convey both the the joy in what God provides in this life, but they also allude to the joy that God will continue to provide on into eternity, don't they? Verse 5 here, David, he, he describes a meal. He's got portions of meat, and he's got a cup of wine. And when we see uh, that cup in Scripture, it can mean a couple of different things. Sometimes it can be a cup filled with God's wrath that is about to be poured out. For example, we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, saying, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of your wrath, let it pass from me. But other times we see this cup filled with blessing, as we see here, as we see David say in Psalm 23, where he says, you prepare a table before me, and in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. And, you know, one of the the most incredible aspects of our dear city is the food, amen? 
Chicago is a foodie city, and we are blessed. If you don't like good food, okay, it's not as big of a deal for you. That's okay. I remember once my mom, Jill and I, we got to, uh, I took her uh, to Rome with me on a work trip, and my mom was real big on, hey, make sure you go to that McDonald's right outside the Parthenon. Love you, mom. We ain't going to no McDonald's in Rome. But in Chicago, we got all kinds of food to pick from, especially like our specialty, steakhouses, right? And if you go to the city, there's a steakhouse on literally almost every block. They're like Walgreens down there, okay? They're everywhere. They're steakhouses you haven't even heard of or ever been to. But we've all got our favorite. And it may not be the favorite you've been to, but it's the favorite and that it's the one you want to go to if you got to go to, especially if like someone else was picking up the tab, maybe. But let's say, let's say this afternoon, this is a hypothetical illustration, just to be careful. Let's say this afternoon, we're going to like, let's all go down, let's celebrate Memorial Day weekend, let's celebrate at a steakhouse in Chicago, okay? And here's the deal, we are going to order the most coveted portion of dry-aged meat, the most expensive cut on the menu. I don't even want them to show you the prices. We are going to order the most expensive bottle of wine, the kind where you're like, I can't even believe that a bottle costs that much. And, and when our server pours, here's the deal, like that cup is just going to overflow, overflow like a fountain, okay, just red stuff pouring out. And, and when the server comes to bring us the check at the end of the meal, someone else is paying that bill. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good, right? That sounds to me like a joy-filled meal, amen? And I think that's essentially what David's describing here. Only instead of a piece of steak, only instead of a glass of wine, he's saying, you, Yahweh, you and you alone, you are my personal, my intentional chosen portion. And because of you, my cup is overflowing with your blessings. And in the midst of a week and a month like this, I think we're quick to forget those blessings, aren't we? And so we need to establish regular rhythms in our lives of remembering how God has blessed us each and every day. I alluded to this a, a couple weeks ago. That's why as part of uh, the way, this spiritual formation journey that a number of folks are on with me over these next three years, our um, contemplative practice, our spiritual practice that we're introducing over these next two months is the contemplative prayer of self-examination called examine. And one of the things that we're doing at the end of each day is we're, we're beginning with a moment of silence. We are reading from a Psalm of David from Psalm 139. And then we're kind of replaying the events of the day, like a movie in your head. And one of the things that we are very intentionally looking for is God's blessing in our life in that day, where we felt God's presence, where we heard his voice, where we felt his love, and giving thanks for that. Because with so much else going on, it's easy to kind of flood that out. It's easy to just skip by that. Just listen to that sound downstairs. That's another blessing, isn't it? Man, worshiping God can be fun. It can be joy-filling and life-giving, can it? He goes on in verse 6, drawing on the settlement of the promised land of Canaan, where they, uh, God divided the land amongst the tribes of Israel. Right? He says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The lines that divided the tribes in this land of milk and honey, this land of blessing. But David, he not only found joy in what God provided in this life, but what he would continue to provide on into eternity. He says, you hold my lot, God. Uh, other translations say, you, you make my lot secure, or you hold my future. 
And he's confessing yet again God's sovereignty here over what might appear to many of us to be random, what it might appear to be chaos, what might look like just the, the roll of the die of casting lots. Right? That's what the apostles did in, in Acts 1 when they went to replace Judas. They, they cast lots to decide between these two men who had been with him from uh, Christ's baptism and, and witnessed his resurrection. But we, we find joy in knowing that in spite of all the, all the confusion, all of the conflict, all of the the chaos that fills our lives and our world, that God securely holds our lot, that he protects our future in his sovereign hand, securing our internal inheritance, one that Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. And I don't know about you, but that provides a lot of hope, doesn't it? And as we journey through this life toward this inheritance, we find joy in God's provision and what it is that he has blessed us with and provided us with. And there's a couple of things here that I think we can pull from what David is saying here. It's not just this, but two things. We, we find joy in the provision of God's counsel, he, he shows us here, in his wisdom that he provides. Look at verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. King Solomon, he would go on to echo his father's words in Proverbs 2, saying, for the, for the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And, and we, we, we find joy in the provision of God's counsel. When we do, I've I, I got three things here that I want to share, three things where we find joy in God's counsel. The first, it's, it's when we read God's word, we find joy. God's word is, a, is a, a lamp to our feet, Scripture says. It is a, a light to our path, a light in that darkness. And, and he's not referring to here by proof texting and taking the text out of its context and making God say what he wants to say. No, but, but the entirety of God's word shaping us. All right, the scripture, scripture is to be the, the lens through which we view our entire world, isn't it? And when we look at the entirety of Scripture, I think we begin to see how it speaks to so much of what we are experiencing in our world. It speaks to the sanctity of life, of all life, knowing that each and every one of us is created in the image of God. Amen? It speaks to that. It speaks to loving our neighbor and loving them as ourselves, but not just our neighbor, but also loving our enemy. And it speaks to laying down our rights for the good of others. And it speaks to pursuing peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Not pursuing it violently, not pursuing it by the sword, not pursuing peace by any means necessary, but pursuing peace peacefully, seeking shalom. So we find joy as we read God's word. We find joy as we trust in God's spirit. This is what we saw in Galatians 5, wasn't it? Relying on the Spirit's strength, yielding to the Spirit's leading, displaying the Spirit's fruit that He is forming within us, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that fruit that the world should see in us and be able to easily identify us as followers of Jesus. And number three, we find joy when we listen to God's people. We find joy when we listen to God's people. And so think about this for a moment. Are you actively seeking out the counsel of other faithful followers of Jesus? Are you listening to what it is that they have to say? And not just seeking out those who are going to affirm your answer. 
But then ask yourself, are they affirming the decisions you're making? Are they affirming the direction you're heading? Because if time and time again what you find is that they're not, then their challenge may be God's counsel in redirecting the path that you've chosen. Does that make sense? I find myself increasingly aware of my reliance on the counsel of God's spirit and God's people each and every week as I prepare to preach from God's word. And I found that to be especially true in the wake of this week's horrific events. I found it to be true because, you know, there was a lot I wanted to say. And what I was asking for was that help to ensure I was only saying what God wanted me to say from his word because this is his pulpit and we are his people. Hear me say, I got like 25 pages of other things I wanted to say that just weren't appropriate from up here. They were good and they were true and this wasn't the time or the place. And so, hey, Rob and Sarah and Becca, thank you. Your church family thanks you because the sermon's a whole lot shorter this way. (laughs) But we find that joy in the provision of God's counsel. And when we do, the second thing we see is that it brings us comfort. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Right? As we fix our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds on God, focusing our attention and our affection on him, keeping him always before us. He comforts us as he guides us, knowing that in the midst of whatever we face, we will not be shaken. Amen? And it's because of that we can have joy. And all of this culminates, number four, in finding joy in God's promises. Right? Finding joy in God's promises. Look at these last three verses here with me, beginning in verse nine. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And this, you kind of get to see why some think that David here, he's giving thanks to God for God's healing hand over his physical body, right? securing his flesh, not abandoning his soul to, to shield to death, not a, allowing his body as God's anointed king to be corrupted by disease. But whomever his enemy, be it disease, be it Saul, be it the Philistines, regardless of the, the reason We know his response. And David felt a sense of security in the assurance of God's promises, knowing knowing that God would not abandon him. Just as God promised Joshua before entering the promised land of Canaan, where he said, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He says, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And here's why. For I, Yahweh, the Lord your God, I am with you wherever you go. And David knew that to be true not only in this life, but on into eternity. That even in death, God would not abandon him. And that filled David's heart with joy that overflowed in worship, rejoicing with his entire being. And as beautiful as that is, there's something more going on here. 
Something more than, than I think even David realized as he wrote the closing words to this psalm, a fuller sense to these words, a sensus plenar as it's referred to in Latin, a deeper meaning to the close of this psalm, one that Peter and Paul both understood. You see, on Acts 2, on Pentecost, as Peter was, was preaching, he, he cited these very words of David, and he, and he goes on to say, brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. His body is still there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would be that he was set on his descendant, one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses. We see the same thing in Acts 13 as, as Paul quotes David's words in a sermon that he preached in Galatia, saying, David, he, he slept, he died, his body saw corruption. It, it rotted away. But he whom God raised up, that is Jesus, he did not see corruption. And that is the act that gives us hope. See, these promises of God, they bring us the same sense of joy that they brought David, filling us with joy, overflowing with joy, rejoicing, worshiping God, our very source of joy with our entire being. His promises make us feel secure. Secure in his promises that no matter what we face, Jesus will be with us always till the end of the age, he said. And that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not in this life and not on into eternity. And that is why even in the midst of all the horrific events that have taken place over this week, this month, this year, we are not only able to remain strong and courageous, but filled with joy. Not surprised at these fiery trials when they, when they come upon us to test our faith as though something strange were happening. Instead, even then, Peter says we are able to rejoice knowing that we share in Christ's sufferings and that we will again rejoice and be glad when? When his glory is revealed, when he returns. Because see, we know something. We know Jesus is alive, amen? Jesus is alive. He, he rose from the grave. He was resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven, an event that the church celebrates on this day, Ascension Sunday. And at this very moment, as we sit here in, in these chairs, in this refuge, in this sanctuary, in the presence of God, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father ready to return where he will not only judge the living and the dead, but he will resurrect our bodies. He will restore all that is broken. He will right all that is wrong and usher in a new heaven and a new earth here, our eternal home. And that eternal inheritance secured by Christ's resurrection that is our hope, a living hope. That is our joy. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for us. Meaning ain't nothing going to stop our God. 
knowing that if we are united with Christ in a death like his, a death that forgave us of our sins, a death he died so that we could know God, so that we could return to God, so that we as sinful humans could stand in the presence of God. If we experience a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his and experience his presence for eternity. And that joy builds with every step we take in this life, faithfully following the way of Jesus, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life, who has made known to us the path of life, of how we are to live in this life, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, and in whose presence there is pleasures forevermore. Family, that is our hope. That is our joy. That is where we find joy, and that is how we can be filled with joy. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.